Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you for the joy that it's been for us to be able to participate in writing and sharing our story as a church in a way that would bless other churches, in a way that would stir up more missions and sending from the heart of the local church. May that be, Lord. May you help us to be faithful to what you've called us to be and to do here at Antioch Church, and of the overflow of that, to care enough about the kingdom to bless other churches, that they too may take up holding the rope for those that are sent out. Father, we also pray that you would help Antioch to bless the nations, not just out there, but right here. Lord, The United States is one of those nations that you aim to bless and draw Gentiles to yourself. And Father, we are a testimony to that grace. And we want to, we are blessed to be a blessing. We want to bless our nation. We want to see your good, your presence work in our midst. And we all feel it more than ever how much we need you in our country. Guide us, Lord, as we apply the things that we learn from your word into our lives and into our culture. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes at this time. Teachers, we commission you. You are sent. All right. Well, church, we're going to continue today in our sermon series in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. We've titled that Worst Thing, Best Thing. I know there are like 17 people here today because it's a holiday weekend, but we're still going to serve you a feast, okay? Still going to serve you a feast. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 45, verse 16 through chapter 46, verse 30. Young disciples, there are guides over, over here. You see the, some of the young disciples grabbing those right now. Um, that's the uh, verses that you need to write down for today's passage. You can find that on page 39 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, but as you may know, they will be on the screen as we go. The title of today's sermon is You've Already Won, and today we're going to kick it old school, and we're going to talk about revival, all right? We're going to have revival among the 17 people who are here today, all right? Often, spiritual awakenings began with a handful of people praying. And so 17 people, hey, revival can break out, and may it be so. Revival happens when we are, and young disciples, here are the things you'll want to write down, stunned by God's grace, renewed by God's presence, and carried by God's plans. Well, since today's passage is so long, rather than standing to read it all at once, as is our practice, I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But let us posture our hearts still in such a way that we can say, in regard to God's word, The Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. If you've been around college basketball at all, you probably recognize this phrase and the man who said it. Jim Valvano, more popularly known as Jimmy V., He was the coach of the 1983 North Carolina State University men's basketball team. And we're talking about a guy who was tremendously eccentric in his personality and his coaching. For example, one of the things he's remembered for is on the first day with the team, before they did anything else, he put up ladders on both goals and they cut down the net. Now that is the champion's throne of basketball, which you only do when you win the tournament in March. 
he said to them, even though they were far from the most talented team in the country, we are going to win the national championship. In other words, you've already won. Now this legacy remains not just because of this, but also because he went on to establish the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. And that holds an annual basketball tournament in his honor. And he introduced this foundation at the 1983 SV Awards. And that was just a couple of months before his death to terminal cancer. He stood on stage with the vitality of his body almost gone. And he concluded with these words. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Now there's something about that kind of like defiant victory that speaks deeply to our souls, doesn't it? Unfortunately, as we have followed the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis, we have watched almost all sense of defiant victory be slowly drained out of his life. Here's a guy who has pretty much given up. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, Jacob was full of jet fuel from birth. He wanted, he wanted to win so bad that he came out of the womb gripping his brother's heel. His name literally means heel grabber, deceiver, schemer. Last we've seen him, though, he's nearly faithless, marked by bitterness, consumed by self-pity. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson, who can get away with saying things like this because when he said it, he himself was an old man. He describes Jacob as, quote, being in grave danger of dying a sad, pathetic old man. His unresolved sins and wounds and anxieties have led him to give up. And y'all, this may seem like a harsh critique of a fellow believer whom we will meet one day, but... Jacob himself admitted as much when he later met Pharaoh and said this, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And yet this is the same man who was chosen by God from birth to have a special relationship with God who's been reminded over and over in miraculous and tangible ways of God's promises and presence, who's been given a new name, Israel, that will be the namesake carried by God's Old Testament people. And just like our own story, the author of Genesis is not wanting his readers to hear it all and be entertained or inspired by Jacob, but instead to be drawn into a story. And to have one primary thing pounded into our hearts over and over. The grace and presence and plans of the God who always wins and never gives up. You see, when we begin to read about God carrying Jacob and his family to Egypt, it's not just about saving them from famine. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15 where we read this. Then the Lord said to Jacob's grandfather, Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation 
For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, everything is going to plan here. Like God is keeping his promises from back. Working out his purposes. It is in Egypt where the people of Israel will experience the definitive moment of Old Testament salvation. The exodus. God sees that in their future. And yet Jacob has lost sight of these things. Like anybody identify with this today? Like you've lost sight of what God once did and promised earlier in your life? You're so ground down that the vitality as an embodied soul is seemingly gone. You may be a youth who feels the confusion of all that's swirling around in our culture right now. You may be a single who feels purposeless in light of how your life is going. You may be a young parent and you just feel exhausted like rest will never return to you. You may be an older believer who has lost hope of your life being exciting and purposeful. Jacob needs revival. Some of you need revival. But how will it happen? Well, this brings us to our first answer from the Scriptures. Revival happens when we are stunned by God's grace. Following Joseph's reunion with his brothers, we read in verse 16, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So just look at God's grace on display here. I mean, like Pharaoh, he isn't threatened by these foreigners. He's delighted. Like why is Pharaoh so delighted? Well, practical reason, I think it's because he's benefited so much from the grace of God on Joseph's life. God is blessing the nations through his people. So to invite Jacob and the family surely would only invite more grace into Pharaoh's life and kingdom. That grace continues in verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. There's another opportunity for the brothers to overcome their jealousy and give some grace. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as he departed, or as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Okay, so grace is obviously on display in the ridiculous extravagance of the caravan sent to pick up the family. See that? Like you can always tell the level of honor bestowed on someone by how they are welcomed and picked up by another country. So think of this like the presidential convoy sent to get the people of Israel. But there's also grace in another place. Joseph tells his brothers... Do not quarrel on the way. In other words, 
Don't be shook up and stressed out in a way that leads to fighting. He says this for good reason, right? Like, they know that they're about to tell their dad the crime that's nearly killed him and that they have hidden for 16 years. They're about to dive headfirst into the taboo of the family. Like, that would have been dreadful. Hanging over your head like a dark cloud the whole way. And for a bunch of brothers who are known for going at each other, killing people, remember the slaughtering of all the men at Shechem? That was among these guys. There is a strong possibility of these brothers at least starting to blame each other a little bit. Not to mention what could bubble out of that. The grace then is Joseph saying, don't stress out, guys. We might say it like this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. Yes, go fall on the sword of confession. That's going to hurt. But in doing so, you'll be falling on the grace of God. And on the other side will be joy and reconciliation and even revival. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, young disciples, this is the message that they tell Jacob. Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Now I love trying to imagine scenes like this. So the picture that came to mind this week of Jacob was like King Theoden in the Lord of the Rings. All right? So when the fellowship arrives at his kingdom, he's aged far beyond his years and nearly dead, as you can see. But in part because he's been poisoned by lies for so long. And when they first approach him, he mostly just like slouches and mutters and grunts. Okay? I love this picture because it's like he's mean mugging you. Like, you know, giving you that. Now, we don't know these precise details about Jacob, but it is clear that he's bent like a bruised reed. He's flickering like a smoldering wick. And all it takes is one more thing and his body will crumple and his spirit will blow out for good. And so when he hears that Joseph is still alive and we're told his heart becomes numb, it's a suspenseful moment. All right? I was with a friend this week who choked on a peanut. And for a moment... I didn't know if he was going to get it up. So I was thinking like old Heimlich maneuver that I learned in my lifeguarding days. And if not that, call 911 real quick. It was a suspenseful moment. Didn't know what was going to come out of this. And the meaning of this is like to become paralyzed with shock. Perhaps the heart literally skips beats. Jacob is stunned. Now this can be the impact of a long spiritual depression which is usually a combination of sin and wounds and life just coming at you the result is that you're drained by unbelief it's not that you don't believe it here you know the truths you know the sunday school answers but it's lost its grip here therefore when good news of grace finally comes it's like it just bounces right off of you you're numb to it Thankfully, verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, 
the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. All right, so let's go back to the imagery of King Theoden for a moment. When Gandalf, the white, stands before King Theoden and breaks the spell, the king's vitality instantly returns. And you know the first thing he does? He takes back up the mighty sword that he's been too weak to wield. Likewise, here's Jacob, who hears the good news of grace And he sees the proof of the presidential convoy. And instantly it's like the spell of his unbelief is broken. It doesn't mean that the consequences of his sins and the pain of his wounds and the churning of his anxieties are all neatly resolved, right? It's like, oh, that's why. No, all those things are still there. Remember, in this moment, he's also finding out the full evil of his sons. It's just that he has a renewed vitality to be victorious over it all so he immediately takes back up the mighty sword of faith that he's been too weak to wield he says i will go now as i've been having pastoral conversations with many of you over the past several months the illustration that has come up very often is that of a wave Life is like a wave, and you can be up on top of that wave, surfing happily with some good perspective, or you can be underneath that wave in the churning of it, being just swirled around and around in a spin cycle. And many of us in these days and weeks and months are living in the spin cycle, aren't we? It's hard to get up on top of the wave. Jacob has been in this spin cycle. And so the question here becomes, how do we as embodied souls get ourselves back up on top of the wave? How do we do that? And I think it's bound up with this phrase that Jacob says, it is enough. Now this is a word that's almost always translated many or much. It is much. Now, what exactly is much? It is the overwhelming grace of God. Jacob did not deserve this. He did nothing to earn this. He had given up. He had given himself to the spin cycle below the wave. And yet God showed up in his loving grace. And it calls out to him, don't give up, Jacob. Don't ever give up. This is the source that allows us to be victorious again. You see, church, revival happens when we are stunned by God's grace. And then secondly, we learn from today's passage that revival happens when we are renewed by God's presence. Chapter 46 kicks off like this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Like when we've been spiritually giving up, it's easy to settle into a place where we no longer have the energy or willingness to take a risk. Like that's what helps get you out of that. You've got to take a risk. 
So when God's grace begins to revive Jacob, like, look at what happens. He has what he needs to begin getting out from under the wave. And listen, this is no small step, is it? Migration is not a small step. Like, we have refugee friends in our midst who could tell us all about this, right? This is not moving across the city, across the state, across the country. And we ought to ask our refugee friends what this is like. But this is also a huge step because Jacob's father Isaac had been, if you remember, specifically commanded by God not to go to Egypt, right? Plus, there were stories of his grandfather Abraham not having so great experiences in Egypt. And so Jacob desperately needed reassurance in the midst of his anxieties. And he sought it. How? By looking back to a place that had been significant to his family, Beersheba. Beersheba was where the Lord had provided a well for Abraham. And then he had done it again for Isaac. And it was also the place that Jacob had just left when the Lord revealed to him the stairway that was reaching from heaven to earth. Remember that? And as I often say to people, like transition is always traumatic. I don't care how big or how small it is. It throws you for a loop, gets you in the spin cycle under the wave. And in the uncertainty of this huge transition, Jacob looks back to the history of God's presence to his people and he worships. He remembers. And then we would do well to apply this to ourselves in our transitional moment in history. Do you know that right now we're going through a major transitional moment in our culture and our history? Therefore, it throws all of us into the spin cycle, as we've talked about before. It, it, it erases the lines that were once drawn morally around us. And we don't even know where one another stands on different issues because it's coming at us so quickly. What do we do? We need the anchor of looking back to the history of God's faithfulness among his people. Yes, we need prophetic voices telling us how to apply God's word into the future. But we also need to look back to the history, the the, the great cloud of witnesses of the the church that goes behind us and says, hey, it's going to be all right. We made it through. We went through a lot worse than you're going through right now. And listen, it kept going. You're you're there today. It's going to be okay. So let's see how the Lord responds to Jacob in verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. Young disciples, here's how God encouraged Jacob most. He said, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, what's happening here is Jacob takes a risk. Right? And God shows up, which is often what happens when we take a risk on God. Look at how he continues to minister to this bruised reed and this smoldering wick. First, he calls him by his old scheming name. He says, Jacob, Jacob. However, remember the significance of doubling things that we talked about back in in chapter 41, that was? 
It was like, the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about, Joseph says, because he noticed how much is being doubled. Well, even though Jacob's been acting according to his former false self, God doubles his name here to show him that he is still in this. Second, he reassured Jacob in regard to Egypt, there I will make you a great nation. Like here is another rewritten script. God's saying, the very epicenter of your fear is actually the very epicenter of your flourishing. In Egypt is where I'm going to grow you into a nation. Listen, a lot of times we may think that the solution is for God to remove the anxious scenario from our lives. When often God wants to use that very scenario to teach us courage. Right? Courage is not the absence of fear. You've got to have fear there to learn courage. Third, God speaks to one of the pressing needs of aging saints. Who will be there when death comes? God says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This makes me think of God's promise in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that he himself will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. Like, here is God's presence embodied in Joseph, Jacob. I'll be there to the end. What a father. Fourth and finally here, we see the most important thing that Jacob needs, here and always, God's presence. God says, do not be afraid. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Why would God say that? Well, it doesn't take a lot of deep exegesis to think Jacob was afraid. That's why he said it. Fear and anxiety is a part of life in this world. But it's not meant to grip us and to keep us from risk and vitality. Listen, in the dozens of references, whether Old Testament or New Testament, God never addresses the poison of our anxious fears without the antidote of his non Anxious presence. Some of y'all trying to scribble that down, so I'm going to say it again. Okay, here you go. God never addresses the poison of our anxious fears without the antidote of his non-anxious presence. He often follows, do not be afraid, with what? Boom! I am with you. God's presence is what we need most in the middle of our fears and anxieties. This is the victory of God with us. So what's the result of how God ministers to Jacob? We get a glimpse in verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. Risk, courage, victory. You've already won, Jacob. Just live into it. In other words, renewal, right? That's the word that we choose to use in our generation more than the ones that went before us. They say revival. We say renewal. Same thing. The vitality increased to his body and his soul. He had jet fuel again. Jacob leads God's people through a huge transition, just like he was created to do. Broken people. Bless people. And so be encouraged, anxious ones. 
Revival can happen when we are renewed by God's presence. Now thirdly, we learn from today's passage, revival happens when we are carried by God's plans. The language of this truth comes out clearly and immediately in the passage, verse 5. The sons of Israel carried Jacob and their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and all their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now we could say this, that regardless of Jacob's willingness, God would have carried him off to Egypt one way or another. However, that would overlook the fact that God delights not just in the completion of his plans, but in the willing obedience of his people. He wants us to participate with him. In his good purposes. He's saying, get in here. Get in on this. Come on, let's go. This is a special moment. And I want you to take note. Like here is a broken old man. Who can hardly walk. Who's become half starved. And as good as dead. And he's being carried victoriously. In a presidential convoy. To the king of the world. Like come on. Don't let weakness deceive you, friends. Like if it renders you more dependent on God, then it is victorious, world-changing strength. Okay? And it may not look that way in the eyes of the world. Who cares about the eyes of the world? Right? The author of Genesis then goes on for 17 verses. This is interesting. I'm not going to read them all to you. But he lists all the family members who made the transition to Egypt. And this might seem like a waste of space to us, but think of it like having a detailed history of your ancestors as they migrated from one country to another. Now this would have been deeply meaningful to the people of Israel. And it offers to us a living footnote and a testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. The author concludes it in verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now why should the number 70 matter to us? Well, let's go back for just a moment to Genesis chapter 10. There was this long list of nations that came from Noah's sons after the flood. And these are the people that then in chapter 11 built the Tower of Babel. Remember, God's plans from the beginning of his creation had said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. Spread out, fill it up. But instead, these people shook their fist at God and said, No, we'll stay put in one place and we'll be one people and we'll make a monument to our glory. Now, how many of those nations were there in Genesis chapter 10? 70. You see the connection? Here in the people of Israel, God is starting a new nation. And they will be carried by God's plans. And they will be fruitful and multiply. And they will be a vessel of filling the earth with His glory. 
created though by grace through faith. That's the difference. That's why 70 matters. And that's the picture here, right? Like this crew might be rolling into Egypt in black limousines and SUVs, but y'all, they are a raggedy bunch, okay? You probably smell them coming before you saw them. Look at this, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Of all people, Jacob sends Judah to prepare the way before him. Like, this is probably the messiest forerunner he could have possibly chosen for himself. And yet, this is God's workmanship, created by grace, not by works. Judah and his raggedy family is a picture of God's plans carried out through messy people. People who compared to their old false selves are like whole new creations here. Judah is literally walking in the good works prepared for him before he was created. This is his true self. This is who God intended for him to be. He leads a victorious people. Be they the raggedy bunch that they are. And the scene closes like this in verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Like it's another moving moment in this amazing book. This is the fifth of seven times that we see Joseph weeping in Genesis. And yet it stands out to me, I don't know about you, that Jacob, he doesn't weep here. You see that? Both of these are men of sorrows. So what's the difference? Well, Sinclair Ferguson again, he says that Jacob's Tear ducts have dried up. That what he feels can't fully be expressed because he's held on to his hurts instead of pouring them out before the Lord. Joseph is just the opposite. He's poured himself out before the Lord over these years. And so he can easily connect with all the emotion that flows from this moment. But Jacob does at least respond with words, although they still reflect like the depressive cloud that's hanging over him. Almost everything he said since he lost Joseph in chapter 37 has been related to death. But do you see the glimmer of victory now? It echoes other words in the Bible. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke chapter 2, verses 29 and 30. In the face of Joseph, Jacob hears the voice of God. Jacob, I'm not finished with you yet. Jacob's saying, let me die. I've seen your face and everything is reconciled within my heart. And God says, Jacob, I'm not finished with you yet. 17 more years. I got work for you to do. So yes, revival can come, even to those in seasons of later life. And it must come 
if God's church is to flourish. We who are younger sometimes need to fall on the neck of weathered believers and just weep a long while. Just let that stuff out. And when our anxieties convince us that the world is falling apart and that there will be nothing left for our children, when the wave has overcome us and we're in the spin cycle underneath it, we need the long memory of those who can testify to God's faithfulness, don't we? This week, I went to several of the older members of our congregation. I asked them to share with me stories of God's faithfulness in their life, where they were about to give up on him altogether. And he came through, and they shared so many stories with me. I was like, I can't share all these stories. And so instead of telling all these stories and this sermon turning into two hours, just go up to them. You may not fall on their neck and weep a long while, but go up to them and ask them, Hey, can we have dinner? Will you just tell us your story? Like, we've basically given up on this kid over here, okay? We just think there's no hope for it. Will you tell me about a time that you felt hopeless over one of your children and you didn't give up and now you see God moving in their lives? Will you tell me that story? I encourage you to do that today, those who are in a younger season of life. And yet also, those of you who are in a later season of life, you, you, looking at the vitality of younger believers that you are getting to invest in and you can say, now I can depart in peace for I know this work will carry on. And that being a a great part of the sword that you still wield in this important season in your life. I remember my grandfather who was a preacher when I committed, uh, responded to God's call to serve him in full-time vocational ministry. He said, now I can die. Because I know that someone, even from my own family, is going to continue preaching God's Word. It's powerful. Powerful for him. Powerful for me. Listen, y'all. God's not finished with any of you yet. He's not. And so let us give ourselves to whatever it is that he has left for us. Revival happens when we are carried again by God's plan. The legend of Jimmy V, it still lingers over college basketball. But it's not just because he said and did eccentric things or died in a tragic way. The reason is tied up with a scene that we watch every March Madness. Remember that 1983 NC State basketball team? The one that cut the nets down at the first practice? Well, not only did they make it to the Final Four that year, and not only did they make it to the championship game against the Houston Phi Slamma Jamma, one of the most talented teams in the history of basketball, they somehow won on a last-second dunk. So the famous clip is always Jimmy V running around the court in almost disbelief, looking for someone to hug. And then guess what? They rose to the throne of college basketball, and they cut down the net to celebrate the victory that long before they'd already won. Now that picture of defiant victory is worth remembering over and over every March. But how can it be ours? And not just from a motivational standpoint, and not just for trophies that will fade in this life. Life has a way of taking our tank full of youthful jet fuel 
and busting holes in it. Our sins and wounds and anxieties drain the vitality out of us. Like we were created as embodied souls meant to be victoriously filling the earth with God's glory. But our bodies break down and our souls clog up. We settle for life under the wave. No energy, no willingness to take a risk. And if we keep to this way, we live in grave danger of one day dying. Sad, pathetic, old believers who have pretty much given up. Recently, me and Robbie were talking about how the gift of sports isn't just in how it entertains or inspires us, but in how it draws us into a story. The story of Jimmy V and the story of Jacob are meant to pound something over and over into our hearts. The grace and presence and plans of the God who always wins and never gives up. Here's his good news for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. From the descendants of the old man Jacob would one day come an old man named Simeon. And old Simeon would himself fall on the neck of a little baby and say with great victory, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Of course, that baby was Jesus Christ, the one who was called God with us. And although you might not know it, seeing that he had the messiest forerunner you could have possibly chosen in a guy named John the Baptist, but such was the eccentricity of this Savior. He came not looking for the most talented, but for a raggedy bunch of people. He called them by name and he told them, do not be afraid. And he gave them great promises and he healed their hurts and he shared in their sorrows. And above all, he addressed the poison of their anxious fears with the antidote of his non-anxious presence. Sometimes when I'm sitting with you all And we're talking about the wave. I pray in my heart, Lord, let them experience in me for just a moment the non-anxious presence of Jesus. Because I don't have to fix you as a pastor. I can sit with you. I can get down in the spin cycle with you even. And trust that God will help you take a risk to get out of it. Speaking in perfect confidence of victory, God says of this man Jesus, Behold my servant, servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. 
Now, he may not lead 70 family members into a foreign land. But we are told in Luke chapter 10 that he appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Why? Random statistic in the Bible? No. It's because he was starting a new nation. One that would be carried by God's plans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory by blessing all nations. That's what he was doing. And was the ultimate expression of that ladder up to a champion's throne? Yes, it was. We're told that Jesus rose from the grave and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down because its victorious work was finished. But first, a crown and a cross and a tomb. This is the strange way that God brings justice to victory. Himself dying in your place. So that an embodied soul like you who can hardly walk, who's become half-starved and as good as dead, can be carried victoriously in a presidential convoy to the king of all the world. How's this for defiant victory, y'all? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that, sh- that we should walk in them. In the face of Jesus Christ, church, hear the voice of God. I am not finished with you yet. Steve, I'm not finished with you yet. Mark, Amy, I'm not finished with you yet. Man, I'm not finished with you yet. Come on, Jonathan, I'm not finished with you yet. Ken, I'm not finished with you yet. Nathan, you're young, but I'm not finished with you yet. Come on, KB, I'm not finished with you yet. You're not going to be around here for the rest of your life. Yeah, Dougie, I'm not finished with you yet. That's what God is saying today. Receive it. Receive it. Someone besides me needs revival today. Antioch Church needs revival today. 17 people, don't matter. Revival's going to come. The Holy Spirit's moving. But how does it come? Always and only by this. Living in the reality that you've already won. It was accomplished by Jesus. It's daily taking yourself back to the championship work of Jesus. The net's already being cut down and being stunned again by His grace and renewed again by His presence and carried again by His plans. You see, to believe that you've already won is to apply that you've already won. Katie and I are learning to enter into the spin cycle with our children to go there and identify with their hurts, but then also to help them pray to the Father and ask for help and strength and power, and then to 
in the prayer and say, come on now, obey. Because you ask God for the power and he will give it to you. Doesn't always go perfectly, does it? But they take a step of risk. And that is how we are revived, church. Take a risk and watch God show up. Pick up your sword again. I don't know who needs to hear that today. But somebody's laid it down because of the sins and wounds and anxieties in your life. I want to go there with you, but I also want to say to you, take a risk. Pick up your sword again. God's doing something. He's doing something. The psalmist David, he said this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, God looks at us in the midst of all the craziness and he lays out a feast. And he says, here's your victory. Come remember. And it's why we come every week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, here's some victory for you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in victorious memory of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, You're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Church, today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is our source of revival. And that he's still in the business of revival. I know the generations before us tried to put revival on the calendar. And we have overreacted to that and said, well, we're not going to do that anymore. But we still need revival just as much as they do, even if we don't put it on the calendar. And I know the former generations used to have this term called rededication. You come forward and rededicate your life to Christ. And we overreact to that and say, we don't want to do that anymore. You need rededication every day. But you know what? We still need rededication, church. And somebody today may walk back and talk to one of us in the back to pray with you and say, I want to rededicate my life to the Lord. I want to pick up my sword again. I want to take a risk because I've given up. I've given up. If you're a baptized believer, come forward and remember this great victory achieved for you. You're proclaiming it until the day that Jesus returns. And if you're here and you're not yet a believer, this is not for you. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ. He has made himself available to you. He holds out to you his victory freely, delightedly. We're going to be pastors and folks in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Revive us again, O Lord. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Thine the glory, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Revive us again. Holy Spirit, have your way. Lord, we confess that we are among a tribe of your people that often does not know what to do with your spirit. Teach us, Lord, 
to respond to your spirit and apply the victory accomplished for us. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.